Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. We jump into the time machine for Throwback Thursday, and at this moment, 40 years ago, we were anticipating Nolan Ryan's first start as a Houston Astro, which was only two weeks away. The Ryan Express had just become baseball's first million-dollar man after he'd signed that four-year, $4.5 million contract in 1980. Doesn't seem like much, but it's equivalent to $16 million in today's money. Over the years, we've asked a few guests about playing with and covering Nolan. Later in the podcast, you'll hear our conversation with Nolan biographer Rob Goldman about his entire career. But before we get to him, let's hear from ex-Astros Bob Aspermani and Kevin Bass, who played with Nolan. Kenny Hand, who covered him, and legendary Houston sports writer Mickey Herskowitz, who worked with him on a couple of books. Let's jump in the time machine and start with original Astro Bob Aspermati, who played with a young Nolan, and then Kevin Bass, who played with him as an Astro back in the 80s. When we were talking about great pitchers that you faced and, and you played with, these guys you played with, they were younger at the time, but when you went to the Mets, Tom Seaver and Nolan Ryan. We had an incredible ball club. The New York Mets, when you look at Nolan Ryan, Tom Seaver, and you you look at the, the ability that they had at that age and the control they had with Gentry is the other one. The, the list gun, Kuzman was the other one. You had four or five outstanding pitchers and all youngsters. And remember what they did in 1969. Uh, I was with the Braves then, and they naturally beat us, and then went into the World Series and won the World Series for Gil Hodges. What about a, a young Nolan Ryan? Do you have any? Do you talk to him? Oh yes, we, Nolan. Nolan's been a friend for a long time, and actually being in Houston environment and with the ball club, we were together an awful lot. And, I, and Ruth Ryan, they're just super people. I mean, they really are. What about getting a chance in your career to play with Nolan Ryan? What was that like? I, I tell you, it was awesome. I got a chance to play with him for seven years. And I can tell you a story. The, the very first time, uh, I think it was 1982, I came over in the trade. I wasn't playing when I, I, you know, those years or when I first got over here. But I was so excited to be able to see Nolan Ryan pitch. So I got a chance. I was on the front step, top step, just watching this man go at it, right? And I just remember thinking then, this was 82, thinking, how does he ever give up a hit? How? How does he ever get a hit? I mean, you know, the ball would just come out of his hand with such velocity, such, I mean, it looked like the ball was going to be in the dirt and it'd be waist high to a hitter. And I'm thinking to myself, how, how could he ever get, ever not pitch a no-hitter? Did you ever face him? I finally faced him. And, yeah, I understood what, what everybody was talking about. I got a chance to face him when he was at the Rangers. And he was 40, 41, 42 years old even then. And it was an exhibition game, and we were playing at the old Oklahoma AAA Stadium. But he was tremendous, amazing, just amazing. And, and what was so amazing about it to me was his curveball and his fastball came from the same area. You know, you're anticipating this fastball, and he throws you this curveball, and the ball looks like it's going to be 10 feet over your head, and then it drops down the strike zone. And then the other thing that I didn't anticipate was how well he hides the baseball in his windup. That high leg kick was for a purpose that he'd have. You, you, it's very tough to see the ball on top of the guys throwing 97, 98 mile an hour. So, yeah, it was, it was everything what everybody mentioned and talked about. 
Nolan used to get after me a little bit because I always referred to him as million-dollar pitcher Nolan Ryan. And he pulled me aside one day and he says, Kenny, you don't realize that one of these days my contract of a million a year is just going to be a drop in the bucket. And I laughed because I go, oh, please, it's a million dollars a year is never going to be a drop in the bucket. Well, that was in 1980, and it literally did become just a drop in the bucket, as we know. He signed for $4.4 million over four years, and that was just the richest contract in baseball, extraordinary numbers, your, your eyes glazed over. And now, I mean, that's a middle infielder hitting 250. So I think what Nolan did is open up that um, opportunity for a lot of other big league players, many of which are many of whom are overpaid. I might add because of the riches in baseball now, and you've got to be very careful the way you dole out the money, especially in baseball, since it's a guaranteed the NFL isn't, but in baseball, that's guaranteed. You sign somebody to the big bucks. Um, uh, look at what the Rangers did originally with Alex Rodriguez with what was it? 126 million originally with them. Come on. I mean, that's just outrageous as good as Alex Rodriguez was back then. So that's the impact Nolan had in 1980. It just absolutely created a new vista for, financial wealth for all major major league players. What was the most surprising thing that you learned from that book with Nolan Ryan, just learning about Nolan and his personality? I think the fact that Nolan really has a great sense of humor and how funny he was. People didn't realize he was thoughtful and bright. And of course, he ended up running the Rangers and doing a great job of it. But he was quiet and he was shy for most of his career. And he sort of bloomed and blossomed by the time he got to Arlington. But I remember late in his career there, his wife, Ruth, who's just lovely, beautiful person, decided she wanted to go to the Nolan Ryan fantasy camp, but not as a spectator. She wanted to play. And Nolan tried to talk her out of it, and she was just insistent. She wanted to be involved and wanted that experience. So he let her sign up as a camper. They went to their training camp. Ruth put on the uniform, got a bat and glove, and she actually batted against her husband. She got in the batter's box, and she told me that she actually made contact. She grounded out kind of a weak ground ball to the shortstop and thrown out at first base. She was really proud of that. But she said what was funny was that the first pitch Nolan threw to her, she had to hit the deck, actually had to fall to the ground. It was inside pitch, and she sprained her left wrist. And I said, you're kidding me. He actually threw an inside fastball to you the first time you stood in the batter's box? And she said, yes, he did. I said, put him on the phone. So we got on the phone. And I said, Nolan, I can't believe it. Did you actually knock down your own wife? And he said, Mickey, I had to. She was digging in on me. I <laughs> love that story from Mickey Erskowitz, who could throw out one incredible anecdote after another, no matter which old school legend you throw at him. Now let's move to Rob Goldman, who put out a tremendous Nolan bio called The Making of a Pitcher. My old co-host R.G. Seal and I caught up with him when the book came out six years ago. And as you're about to find out, his relationship with Nolan went back a long ways. I first met Nolan, uh, I met him as a fan in 1970 at a the Shamrock Hilton in uh, Houston where the, the Mets were staying. And I had everybody on my ball. I had signed, uh, got autographs from everybody on the team, but Nolan. And, you know, I was wondering why I couldn't find him. And it turns out, you know, he lived in Alvin, so he wasn't with the, wasn't with the team. So finally the last day of the, the homestand, I 
I got wind of it and I knocked on his door uh, and Ruth Ryan answered and she was just nice as uh, no one was as polite as ever. And uh, I was only 12 years old, but I was very struck by their compassion there and empathy for a young fan. Two years later, I was hired as a substitute bat boy for the California Angels. That was 1970-73. And I got to know him in a different way. No one has a one good quality. He doesn't judge people by the money they make or their stature. If you're a good person and you work hard, you know, he's, he's attracted to character. So uh, somehow we, we hit it off. I like country music and horses, and we're both pretty sincere, authentic people. And we hit it off, and our friendship developed. And I was bat boy for three years. And I took off and uh, chased a girl, and I came back later with the Angels, and we established the friendship again. And I've known him ever since, you know, the early 70s. And so it's been a long, long, uh, wonderful relationship, not just with Nolan, but with, uh, with Ruth, Reed, and Reese, the whole family. Well, we'll start off from the beginning of Nolan's career. And in his first game, he comes out in relief. He retires his first batter, Hall of Famer Hank Aaron. But then Joe Torre hits a home run. The Mets gave him his first start soon after that at the Astrodome in Houston in front of his family. But he didn't get out of the first inning. He was pretty frustrated. So what he decided to do long term at that point kind of might surprise a lot of people. What was he going to do that off season after after that start? Wherever he went prior to you know the majors, he could just overpower people. But he found out very quickly with that game with the Braves that you mentioned, Joe Torre. You know he hit his best fastball over the scoreboard. So he realized that you know he just couldn't throw hard and get major leaguers out. Sooner or later they're going to they're going to time him. So he had to rethink things. You know this thing. Well, maybe I won't be a, a career. This, this this thing may not last too long. So he had to go back to. Alvin Community College and take uh, classes. He was looking to be a veterinarian, uh, you know, work with animals, with uh, a cattle or, or a dogs, a veterinarian. And he also pumped gas and did odd jobs, worked uh, installing air conditioning one off season. So he realized it was no slam dunk. And uh, that's kind of a characteristic of Nolan. He doesn't take things for granted. That's part of the reason for his big successes because this made him bear down harder and work harder. He actually was going to quit a couple times, but Ruth, Ruth talked him out of it. But it was not what you point out is correct. It was not an easy road. Uh, it took five or six years for him to, to get the mechanics and get the conditioning and get the fundamentals down, become the Nolan Ryan that we know today. One of the big revelations in the book for me was that during his first few years of his Mets career, Nolan was doing two to three week summer stints in the Army Reserves. As you point out, that was one of the re- reasons why this wild young flamethrower had trouble becoming a consistently good pitcher. Explain, if you would, why he ends up in the reserves to begin with. That was during the Vietnam era. Young guys were getting drafted all the time and going to war, and they weren't coming back. So the Mets had a deal where, for the better or worse, you know, if, if one of their players got drafted, they could finagle it so they just work on the you know do reserve work and not go to actually go overseas. So no one got in on that. The, the, the downside was, like you said, he couldn't get in any any condition. He couldn't get the pace. And that on top of not getting the fundamentals from pitching coach Rube Walker and uh, having a little bit of a rocky relationship with Gil Hodges, those three factors, plus that he hated New York, so there's four factors, probably was the, the primary reasons why he didn't cut it in New York. It wasn't until he got to Anaheim in 1972 where things were a little bit more lax. He got the training from t- a pitching coach Tom Morgan. The Army Reserve thing was over, so he knew he knew he was going to be in town every 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 month, and uh, that's when things really started to change. 
the Mets organization, they often get ridiculed for, for trading Nolan Ryan away. But really, this was the best thing for his career to, to go to an organization like the Angels where he could become that starting pitcher that we know is the legend, Nolan Ryan. It just wasn't going to happen in New York. As you can see, all these things coming together, these elements were going against him. Plus, you got to realize at the time, the Mets were very pitching-centric. Gary Gentry, uh, Tom Seaver, Jerry Kuzman, Todd McGraw, Jim McAndrew. If you don't get it together and you crack the, 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 the starting staff, you're not going to get a shot at it. And that's exactly what happened to Nolan. And he saw it. Plus, like he said, he was living in an apartment in Queens. He was miserable. And he told Ruth at the end of the year, 71, look, if I don't get out of here, I'm going to quit baseball. And so Ruth said, well, let's give it another shot. And that's when Nolan went to the general manager, uh, Bob Schepping, and said, yeah, I request, he requested the trade. It wasn't the other way around. Nolan requested that trade. And, of course, that offseason, he was traded to the, to the Angels. And at the time, he was traded for a pretty good shortstop, Jim Fergosi. So at the time, in Southern California, it, we were in uproar. We didn't think, well, why are we, why are we trading Jim Fergosi for this, this you know, part-time starter? Of course, nobody realized at the time that Nolan Ryan had all that potential. And that's exactly what happened. He got to spring training. Pitching coach Tom Morgan worked with him, got his, uh, got his fundamentals and mechanics in check, he worked with Jimmy Reese, the conditioning coach, and worked on his legs. He discovered the Universal Gym, a little weight room we found. We had in the, in the basement of the, of the Anaheim Stadium uh, clubhouse. And things really started to come together, and they came together very fast. And all of a sudden, it looked like it was the worst trade in Major League history. But at the time, guys, it would look like it was the other way around. It looked like the Angels got the worst part. And he was really able over that period, too, because the Angels were a below 500 club for most of his time there in Anaheim. And he really got an opportunity to pitch and to, again, break Sandy Koufax's single-season strikeout record and to, to become that dominant pitcher that we know. Yeah, he was he was allowed the chance to, to succeed. Where in New York, he had one bad outing, he was banished to the bullpen again. And and in Anaheim, he, they had nothing to lose, you know. So they gave up Jim Fergosi for him. So they're, they're going to stick with him, you know. And that's exactly what happened. The first part of spring training in '72, you know, it wasn't even for sure he was going to be on the starting staff. Manager Del Rice decided to stay with him, and you know, it, it took him even a while in Anaheim to get on track. But boy, when he got on track. He got on track, and like you said, in 1973, he broke Sandy Koufax's uh, single-season strikeout record of 382. No one got uh, 383 on the last game of the season, which I, I, I go into detail in the book. But it really wasn't an overnight success. A lot of things had to come together for Nolan, and his perseverance and plus Ruth Ryan's insistence that he not quit, that's very important to remember. Those were two factors that were that must be considered when you look at the career of Nolan Ryan. People think of Nolan Ryan as old school and maybe old fashioned, but in reality, what he did with his training and his openness to trying new things was very cutting edge, particularly working with Dr. Gene Coleman while with the Astros and Tom House with the Rangers. Can you give a couple of examples of the techniques he tried that really became revolutionary? You hit it on the head. You know, we look at Nolan, oh, he's the conservative, this and that, but no, he's, he's in a sense a revolutionary. He's very curious. And like I said, he, he discovered that weight room. Uh, it was the old school universal gym back in 1972. You know, he just had a 10-station deal. And you got to realize, before that, nobody, very, very few pitchers touched weights. 
So he had to do this on the sly. He had to sneak in there because if they found him, they'd probably find him. I mean, definitely take that machine away. So he was doing that on the sly. He had a, we, we snuck him a, a key. The trainer gave him a key so he'd have his own access. And that was the first revolutionary thing he did was, was pitching with weights. He found that after the seventh inning, he became stronger. Then he, in 1973, we had, a, we had a stretching coach. The first time we, we, stretching was, was established uh, as a team deal. So he got in on that. All of a sudden, sudden he was putting his, uh, his his leg over his neck. I mean, he was that limber. When you get a guy that strong and that big, that kind of uh, ability to stretch, you're going to really, really overpower the ball. So there was two things there. Then, of course, when he got to Houston, like you mentioned, Dr. Gene Coleman, he was a professor at the University of Clearwater. He was a, he was a cutting edge. You know, he was the first guy to have Nautilus in the in the in the gym. He, he was always doing chart work, the first guy to put a, a speed gun in Nolan. It, one of his most important techniques was he, Nolan had a real bad time with his, his ankle joints and his back joints because he's bow-legged. So uh, Gene Coleman talked to the track coach at the University of Texas, Dr. Blackwell, James Blackwell, and he said, yeah, I, I, I conditioned my kids in the swimming pool. In other words, they, they tether them down the, under the diving board and they have them put a stopwatch on them and a snorkel and a mask. And they do their wind sprints in the water. That was great for Nolan because now he can get his aerobics in without jarring up his joints. And he did that from 1983 on all the way through the rest of his career. He was sneaking into pools on the road at 6 a.m., you know, making arrangements at the local YMCA. But swimming was an integral part of his conditioning. Then when he moves on to Texas, he meets Tom House, which is a disciple of, of Doc Coleman. And... Tom had just come home back from Japan. He had all these different, uh, you know, the towel exercise. He had guys pitching on the flat part, you know, get, 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 not pitching on the mound where they pitch where it's flatter, where you, you warm up quicker. He had guys throwing uh, footballs. So the combination of Tom House and Gene Coleman, they're a big part of, of Nolan Ryan's ability to pitch as long as he did. Nolan always gravitated towards the, the smartest person in the clubhouse. And it was just lucky and fortunate he had these guys where they were during during that time of his career. After all these years, it's still mind-boggling that two organizations let Nolan Ryan go when he wanted to stay there, first with the Angels after the 1979 season and then with the Astros after the 1988 season. Nolan had different relationships with the owners, calling the Angels Gene Autry as good an owner as there is in baseball. With the Astros, Dr. John McMullen, it was always distant. Can you explain the personalities of both of these owners and how their different handling of the situation ultimately led to the exact same result of Nolan leaving town? Like you said, Gene Autry, he was Nolan's favorite owner. He was just a good, decent person. The, the problem with Gene, he delegated all, his, all the power to his baseball people. So he was hands off. That's just the way he worked. So he, he gave all the power to Buzzy Vivesi, the general manager in 1979. He said, go, you know, let Buzzy figure it out. Now, Buzzy Vivesi is old school. He was, you know, he worked with Drysdale and Koufax and brought in, ushered in Jackie Robinson. You know, he, he, he's used to calling the shots. And this is just the start of the age where agents uh, started coming into baseball. So now Buzzy didn't take to that. He liked calling the shots. He didn't want to deal with agents. So that was the problem. The problem wasn't Autry versus Ryan. It, it, had Autry known about all this and he was going to lose him, he probably would have just gave him whatever he wanted. But he delegated the power to Buzzy Vivesi. And, of course, uh, it was a personal deal with uh, with Nolan's agent and Buzzy. 
And uh, finally, they just had enough. And what's sad about that, Buzzy had offered uh, Nolan a package at the start of the year. Had Nolan taken that, he would have stayed. But by the time the negotiations started in earnest at the end of the year, you know, everybody was in on it. Houston wanted them, Japan wanted them, the Yankees wanted them, the Giants wanted them, and the Angels just got outpriced. Austria has always said that was his biggest regret, not going directly to Nolan. And Nolan actually mentioned that to me. You know, maybe I should have gone to Gene directly, but that just wasn't the way it was done. Now, with Houston, uh, John McMullen was kind of the opposite of Gene Autry. He was not personable. He was a good businessman, but he was just kind of cold. And he, too, delegated some of his powers to his, his general managers. At the time Nolan left in 1988, there was three or four pitchers making more than he was. I think, you know, Mike Scott, Joe Necro, they're all making more than Nolan. Nolan just had that basic uh, one million per year. But by the time it was 1988, everything had changed. And Nolan just wanted to keep up with the other guys. He wasn't demanding a lot. But again, uh, these guys held the line. They said, no, no, we're, we're going to pay you. Uh, we're not going to pay you what, what we think what you think you're worth. And they challenged and basically go to free agency because they didn't believe that anybody else would pay. Of course, <laughs> of course, there was a lot of suitors, particularly uh, Gene Autry came back in the fold. He wanted him back. And of course, the Rangers, you know, once they realized that there was some, you know, things weren't going smooth in Houston, that they jumped on it. General manager Tom Reeve got wind of it. And the Texas owner at the time said, it's getting Nolan. I don't care what it costs. Because they realized the value is not just in one loss, but what he brought to a team. He was he anchored the staff. You know, every four days, you know, you're going to pitch the major league strikeout leader. Anybody who ever played with him says, yeah, he just elevated the entire team. So, yeah, what you said is true. People underestimated Nolan. And even today, like you say that, you know, not just when he was a player, but I think the Texas Rangers underestimated him. You know, they let him go. They just they listened to John Daniels and Ray Davis and him got together and they kind of edged Nolan out. So now where's Texas in the standings? Now Houston's kind of up and coming. So history shows that you don't underestimate Nolan Ryan because it usually comes back to haunt you. You write throughout the book about what a family guy Nolan was. And I think we all know that the best example in the book really was when his son Reed, who, of course, is now the Astros president, was just nine years old. He's nearly killed in a car accident out in California. Tell us a little bit about that incident and, and, and how Nolan responded to that. Well, yeah, you're right. It was the uh, summer of 1979. Reed was uh, he was showing off his new Little League uniform. He was just a little kid, and uh, he was running down the street, and some, some of the neighborhood bullies started chasing him. They wanted to take the uniform. They were jealous, and they started chasing him down the street, and he ran him right into a car, which was turning right into his house and it took out and read and he lost one of his uh he lost one of his kidneys in the spleen very nearly died shattered his leg and of course no one you know it's the middle of the season he had a, he had to play through that so reads an entire body cast so no one and ruth whenever they were they were when no one was home you know they, they tandem visits to the hospital you know, and no one would go early and then ruth would be come in around two or three o'clock when no one went to the ballpark. But they did this for the entire summer. You know, on the road, no one would uh, come back. He'd get souvenirs from every team and come back to the hospital and give them to read. And kind of a, another sidelight to that, when, uh, whenever he visited these, the children's hospital, there was, a lot, there was a lot of kids worse off than we were. And 
knowing the friend of some of these kids that were, you know, had chronic illnesses, you know, cancers and stuff that, you know, he'd give them gifts too. And sometimes he'd never see them again. They would die. But it just showed you his, his devotion. Like you said, families first. He would not have played as long as he did without the okay with Ruth and the kids. At the end there, you know, he always brought them aboard. He let, he let them be bad boys and bought them the clubhouse. And that's one of the reasons of the frictions they had with Houston. You know, Dr. McMullen says no kids in the clubhouse except on Sunday. Well, that really irked no one. So that was one, another reason why he wasn't happy with, with Houston. Speaking again of family, in the book you mentioned that it would be impossible to overstate the importance of Ruth Ryan to her husband's career at success. Nolan seemed to glean something from different sources throughout his life, whether it was the work ethic from his father, the importance of conditioning from Dr. Gene Coleman, or the dedication to the pitching craft from Tom Seaver. Knowing Ruth and Nolan like you do, what would you say is something he has gleaned from Ruth that has helped to define the Nolan Ryan we know today? Nolan's always said, you know, that the smartest thing he ever did was marry Ruth Ryan. She's a very unique person. Not only she's lovely and a great personality. It's interesting. Some people say that she's a little bit more competitive than Nolan. You know, she was a great tennis player in, 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 in high school, and she forgo a college uh, uh, college tennis, uh, you know, playing college tennis to, to stay with Nolan and, and back him throughout his minor league career. She was really the driver she was always there for him. They have a very unique relationship. He'd call her four or five times every day on the road. There was no carousing with other girls. If he went out, he went out and just had dinner and watched the movie. But, you know, he wasn't like some of these other guys. But she, like I said, she was the driver. She kept the home fires going. And uh, there's two, two times I know for sure where she said, you know, he was very seriously thinking about quitting. Once with the Mets, another time in 72, with a, there was a player strike. In the spring of '72, and the Ryan's they were they were pretty much broke, and uh, no one says this goes on another week. I gotta get I gotta get home because they had Reed was just born, so he had a supportive family. And Ruth says no, let's let's give it another week or so, and so he stuck it out. So without Ruth Ryan, there would be no Nolan Ryan as we know. She was his rock. You know, Nolan's a very stoic, strong person, but I don't know where he'd be without Ruth Ryan as far as his baseball career. In the book, I say, you know, this is not just a baseball story. It's a love story. Yeah, definitely. Family keeps coming back again and again. Just one last thing. One of my favorite stories was uh, you talked about his great-great-great-grandfather in Mississippi who had a nephew named Isaac. And what happened to Isaac? That, that's a fantastic story. Yeah, and not a lot of people know this. In fact, no one didn't know. I think a few of his family members did. His sister didn't know. I think his older brother knew. But uh, like you said, his great-great-great-great-grandfather had a brother who had a son named Isaac Ryan. They were out of Mississippi, and uh, they were friends of uh, a frontiersman named James Bowie, uh, founder of the Bowie Knife. And Jim Bowie said to Isaac, well, there's, a, there's a, some struggles going on in Texas. You know, maybe uh, we could use some good fighters. He knew Isaac was tough. Isaac volunteered in this, in this militia group, and uh, they sent him right to San Antonio. And uh, he was there on the north wall of the Alamo on March 6, 1836. The, the north wall had a breach in it, and that's where Colonel Travis was uh, positioned because it was the toughest part to guard in the whole fort. So there was actually a Ryan, Isaac Ryan, who died that morning at the Alamo in 1836. So you talk about Texas roots and talk about a Texan. I don't think you're going to get any more Texan than having a relative die at the Alamo. But that Isaac Ryan is the direct, direct relative of Nolan Ryan. 
outstanding stuff from Rob Goldman. And if you're interested in his book, I saw that it's free right now. If you have an unlimited Kindle membership, you can also get a hard copy on Amazon. I hope you enjoy our look back at Nolan's life and career. And I hope you're enjoying Throwback Thursdays each and every week. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening. Attack!